Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. Tim Bishop, great to have you on. Thank you very much for the invite. Looking forward to it no end. So Tim uh, is a businessman. Uh, he, he runs a, a successful law firm uh, in the southwest of the country. Um, his uh, specialization is, is loosely around property, but uh, first and foremost, uh, he, he, he's a businessman. So, uh, Tim, we're going to go back into your earlier days um, and we're going to hear the story about uh, what your property world has been. So where did it all begin? Where, where were you born? I was born in Maidstone in Kent. Uh, yeah, Maidstone, Kent, 1962. So, yes. Right. And, and uh, what, what was your upbringing uh, like? Um, very good, typical sort of middle class upbringing. Dad worked, worked for the hospital service. Mum was the school secretary. Um, yeah, um, went to local schools, then went to a local grammar school about five minutes walk away. Um, yeah, and then I went off to university. You know, my, my brother was a lawyer and I probably didn't think about it too much. He's 18 years older than me. And I, I've never actually come across anybody with such a big gap between two natural siblings. Just the two of us, full siblings, 18 years. So I think it's a, it's a bit unusual. But yeah, I think because he was a, uh, a solicitor, I kind of went down that route. Whether it's right or wrong, I don't know. But that's what I did. And so that's how I ended up kind of where I am now. My, my grandfather was 30 years younger than his uh, oldest sibling. Wow, that's a, that's a big gap. That, that's a you, 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 you're not be into yeah. a cocktail there. Well done, Will. Yeah, yeah. he had a. Uh, I think he had a. Um, uh, it must have been a, a, a ten-year-old niece and nephew uh, by the time he was born. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it's uh, unusual. Yeah. So, so tell me, um, what what were your early sort of uh, days? What, what what were they? What were they made up of? What were you into as a child? Um, I've always been an obsessive music fan. I still am. Um, uh, I now use what is now considered to be obsolete technology. I have a, a family of iPods. Um, I, I love the iPod. It, you know, I've got 26. Well, they're a bespoke one, so I've got 26,000 songs in there. So I think number one, a bit of an obsessive music fan. I was keen on that. Keen on sport, football, cricket. Um, looked great as a cricket player, but actually didn't have very good eye coordination. So started off age 13, opening the batting for the grammar school. Fantastic. Didn't last long because although I looked perfect, I kept missing the ball. So my, my cricket career was, was brought to an ignominious <laughs> end, I'm afraid to say. But you had very stylish strokes. Oh, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I had a full range of strokes, just missed the ball. <laughs> and and uh, what, what's your, your favourite uh, artist? I suppose Bowie, David Bowie, I suppose. Most people of my generation are a bit obsessed with David Bowie. But I said for 26,000, I could give you a list which will go on for quite a while. But I think we'll, we'll, we'll stick with David Bowie, yeah, it has to be. 
And and so um, you you were heading into secondary school. What what was your um, what what was going on in your your life in terms of where where did you see yourself headed? Was there a plan? Was there a plan forming? Was there no plan? What 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 were you into at that stage? Yeah. Um... I, I, the first time, actually, I remember thinking about what I wanted to do as a job. I must have been 11 or 12. Um, and I think I've probably grown into my age. I think I was probably born dull, um, a bit of a natural nerd. So I distinctly remember when I was about 11 or 12 being interested in business, in fact, sort of, uh, financial trading, etc. And I remember even at the age of 11 or 12, I had a little tiny little pocketbook. And for a, a month or two, I would look in the Daily Telegraph, which my dad got, look at the shares and do imaginary tr share trades. Uh, you know, and actually I made it on paper a bit of money, you know, it was all theoretical. So I think probably that should have given me the indication that it was business I wanted. But then I kind of forgot about that. Uh, I guess perhaps family circumstances in my brother. My mum died. She was ill when I was about 11, died when I was 15. Dad was um, well into Sorry his 60s that. by then. So, um, yeah, I think I kind of went for the kind of safe option. And as a result, didn't really think anything more about it. Decided I want to be a lawyer. And that was it. So once you decide that, you know, wanted to go to grammar school, university, law school. So, you know, from the age of about 15, I suppose, 14, that was kind of panned out and planned. So I didn't really have to think. I had a route. I was sticking to it. And, and so what, what was your pathway? Where did you go to university? What was the um, what was your initial training? Yeah, I, uh, I did a law degree and I eventually went... A lot of people get started in law and, and realise it's a bit different to what they, they perceive. Yeah. Um, I, I went to actually King's London, almost went to Bristol, but I'm afraid to say it was about a girl. I was going out with a girl. So although I wanted to go to Bristol, I eventually came to London instead. So did my degree there. Um, and I, I, to be honest, I was, I was lazy. Um, I've always had a tendency to perhaps, uh, when, my, when I was younger, to be lazy. I didn't start working hard probably till my late 20s. Uh, I found things a bit easy, and I'm afraid to say I coasted through it uh, and didn't do terribly well. Had to retake a few exams because I was just so lazy, I'm afraid to say. Didn't do the work, um, which I'm embarrassed about, but I'm open about, and you learn your lessons. Um, so, yeah, so I went through that, and again, didn't really give it any second thought. Uh, after university, finishing the law degree, um, got a place at law school, College of Law, Lancaster Gators was, and again, did pretty similarly there, did the bare minimum, scraped through. Um, in the meantime, uh, got a job uh, uh, when I... When my training contract was um, quite a swish firm in Leicester Square, and they were specialists in music law, which I thought was perfect for me. Um, I'll be honest with you, I stayed there. When I qualified, I went to another music law firm. But actually, I increasingly started to realise that actually it wasn't for me, because rather than actually working in music law as a music fan, actually it had nothing to do with music whatsoever, really. It was all contractual work, you know, 100-page contracts, 200-page contracts, which I found dull. Um, I think at, at that stage I started to realise that I was, and I hadn't really clicked this until I was in my forties. But I started uh, getting what, what sort of uh, scale of uh, and where within the music industry because uh, it's a you know I, I was watching a documentary about David Geffen, uh, who people may or may not know is one of the, the, yeah. the uh, leading filmmakers um, and uh, contract doers uh, in entertainment and history. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Um, the firm I did my training with, um, well, we acted for lots of big artists, um, you know, uh, The Who. I think we did some work for Michael Jackson. Certainly when I was there, I remember seeing a particularly Scotty <coughs> Dope reception who turned out to be Pete Townsend of The Who. You know, and at the time, we had lots of, you know, I, I did some work for, for someone who was, you know, had a, a BBC series at the time. So, you know, there were some fairly big names. Uh, at that stage, my secretary was president of the Curiosity Kill the Cat fan club. Um, they were briefly you know, Britain's favourite band. So they were the kind of bands, you know, we were dealing with. A lot of big bands, few record companies. Um, so that was interesting, um, but um, then um, I, I, I then went to, to to another firm, pure legal work, um, again for music. What 
was your awareness as a trainee of the business of law? Of the business of law? Um, not because you're, you're working away, you're going through your professional training, hmm. uh, you're working as a, effectively as an apprentice with. Yeah. Um, with I, had very poor, I, I had very poor training, I think. Um, and it was when I moved on for my post qualification job, the first job, um, I think it's that stage I started realizing that this probably wasn't what I wanted to do. And I had a clear plan at that stage. Um, and actually, this is when I think I started thinking of business. My plan at that stage was to do what I was doing for two or three years. That's doing contracts for record companies uh, in the private practice and then move across to work for a record company. This, these are the days you're talking about late 80s, um, when the, probably the record industry was almost at its peak and is selling <coughs> huge amounts of them, uh, and lots of big companies. Um, so my plan at that stage was move across to them, do the same thing, and then start to drop the legal work. Because what I, I could see was quite a few of the, the senior managers actually started off as solicitors, but eventually did the business. So I was far more interested at that stage actually in the deal, um, or I was starting to come aware. So that was the plan. But um, plans don't always come according to, to plan, and it didn't quite work out that way. In hindsight, I'm pleased because subsequently the record company became a shell of what it was before. So um, not for the first time in my life, I ended up doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Okay. And uh, so what, what was, uh, what emerged as the alternative option? Ah, this is when I went completely mad. Um, I, I, I was a music obsessive um, and I, I'd gone straight from school to university, etc. And at that stage, I was a qualified solicitor with a year's experience, but I was very keen on music and I'd started fiddling around with, with, with synthesizers. I was a great fan of electronic music, still am. So I was fiddling around with that. So um, had a had a band and we uh, I gave up to do that full time. And we did that for a while um, and uh, didn't quite succeed. Okay, and, and were you touring? Were you recording? What, what were you doing? This was all kind of demos at that stage. We actually got a, a production um, deal from a really expensive studio who quite liked it. We only had one good song, but it was a cracker. Um, and um, so we did videos and stuff and demos, but we never went, we went beyond that, never played live. But uh, And unfortunately, my vocalist, he, his vocals weren't caught up to it, so we kept having to redo the vocals, and eventually they lost interest. At that stage, we kind of gave up. But then I, I tried to do something different. So at that stage, electronic dance music was just starting to emerge. And so I started doing some um, some dance music on my own, um, all home produced. Um, probably produced, released about half a dozen singles, I guess. So, um, yeah, that's when I suppose I was a little bit more successful. It all made money, not much. Um, I'm quite amused to see one still on, I think, eBay for about... So, so there's a, a tremendous change going on in the background mm. uh, economically at that stage. You've got this enormous uh, uplift through the 80s. Uh, yep sort of Thatcherism, and then yep. uh, there's an enormous crash, and uh, the early 90s are pretty dire times uh, uh, to be in the UK and be in business, so uh, yeah. early on anyway. My, my timing was needed to say impeccable. So um, having left law at the peak of the boom, um, tried to do music, I said, putting a little bit of money with dance music, then I played live with, with some other artists, but didn't make any real money, etc. Um, I decided to come back um, to law. And having left at the height of the boom um, with a really good job, I came back in the depth of the recession. Um, record companies were, 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 shift, were, were downsizing, uh, 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 Commercial lawyers were downsizing, so I couldn't get a job. And so, I'd, although I'd been out for about three or four years, during which time I'd grown my hair halfway down my back, that came off. Um, I tried to get back to law, and it I took a. Can't picture it. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it was a long hair, but halfway down my back, I hadn't cut it for four years. Briefly, every so often, hair become, long hair becomes fashionable. And for about six months, it was fashionable. You know, um, and actually, I got married with a, with a very long ponytail, if you must know. And uh, there is photographic evidence. Uh, I'm not sure my in-laws were overly impressed, but they quite liked me, so they kind of forgave me. 
Um, so yes, yeah, so I came back in the depth of the recession. Um, and rather than um, wandering into a job, and I've, up to that stage, I found everything fairly easy, wandered into university, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I never really challenged, made a couple of mistakes, but it had been easy. Suddenly, okay. it was a very so different you scenario. Were you the city at this stage, or what, what, where, where were you based through this period? Uh, I was living in London. That's probably my first property venture, I suppose, because my wife and I, we weren't married at the time. We bought a house in Brixton for about 84 grand. Um, so we were living in that, and we were subsidising it by having, um, we, we rented out two rooms mainly to uh, Kiwis and uh, Australians, I'm pleased to say. They seem to think that Brixton SW2 was next to Earl's Court, SW3. Well, anybody with a basic knowledge of London, no, it's nowhere near. SW2 is not next to SW3, but they came to see us and they liked us, so we did that for a while and that helped pay the mortgage. Very good. So 84000 for a, a three or four bedroom property. And, three bedroom, and yeah, ex-council house in Brixton, in a terrace house, nice house. Very good. And uh, so that got you on the uh, on the property ladder. What, uh, what was the um, the mortgage rates going at, at that stage? Well, um, at that stage, coming back to, I, I actually remember when the, the day of um, the mortgage rates went up, because I actually remember what I was doing, because having not got back to law, it took me about six, nine months to get a job. And in that period, um, I decided I need to produce some income. So I was doing all sorts of things. So I, although I was a fully qualified solicitor, I did some telesales work. I enjoyed it the first day, okay the second day, hated it the third day, lasted about three weeks. Then, can you believe, I found uh, some temporary work doing working for a law firm, doing their photocopying. And I think one, one seminal moment for, for me there was when I was allowed to use the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the dining room. Big, one of the, it was one of the really top commercial firms. And I bumped into someone I'd been to at university with Kings and lost contact with. And she said, are you working with us? Oh, yes, I said, temporarily. Oh, which department are you in? Mergers and acquisitions? No, I said, I'm doing your photocopying. Uh, and I was because there was this enormous case and there were about six of us doing nothing but photocopying. So that was quite a, a quite useful. I think it made me realise, did I want to get back to law? Because it was a bit of a kick in the teeth, you know, everything had been easy. And here I was doing her photocopying age 29. Um, so yeah, um, I, I decided I did want to come back to law. But the reason I mention it is because while I was down in the basement doing the photocopying, I remember hearing that interest rates had gone up to 15%. So yes, I do remember that. We were paying a mortgage at 15%. Right, and people would be panicking if the base rate went up to one point five. Uh, I know, absolutely, absolutely. We've we've been there. We've been there. We came through it. Right. So you um, you moved on from the photocopying, or moved up from the photocopying at I some did. stage. Yeah, I took a couple more temporary jobs, uh, and then actually got my first job back in law uh, after about another year or so. Um, and again, it was very humble. And again, I think at this stage, I started realising if I was ever going to succeed, I had to actually put a bit of effort in. So I was living in Brixton, South London, and the only job I could get, because nobody wanted me, because I've been out of law for five years, and my only one year's experience was doing music law, which wasn't terribly transferable. Um, so as a result, I got a job um, as a very junior criminal lawyer in Folkestone. Now, again, for anybody who knows their, um, their, their geography, Folkestone is nowhere near Brixton. Um, you know, one's on the Kent coast, one's in South London. So it was probably an hour and a half, two hours drive minimum. So what I used to do, and I was paid about 15 grand. Um, and what I used to do is three or four days a week, I'd stay in the cheapest B&B I could find. I think it was 15 quid a night. And I go to Sainsbury's, pick up some food. And that lasted a while. And once I'd been there for a period, I was then attractive on the employment market and I could, I could pick a job again. But yeah, I did that for a living away from home during the week for about six, nine months, I guess, just to get back into law. And what, what sort of scale of firm was this in? Oh, small firm. Two partners, husband and wife. Um, I think I may have been the only solicitor. There may have been another solicitor, two or three clerks, a couple of secretaries. So you know, a small firm doing nothing really but crime and a bit of, bit of family law. And so you're going down to the courthouse, you're uh, 
dealing with criminals, you're dealing with the uh, prosecutors, you're dealing with the, the police, you're, you're, you're doing uh, typically fairly high volumes of, of Absolutely. Yeah, it wasn't quite so bad as it is now, I think, because rates are so ridiculous. But yeah, it was a lot of police station work, court work, um, you know, yeah, absolutely. And you decided that wasn't quite your, your cup of tea? But I didn't want to stay in Folkestone. I, I, I got dive-bombed on more than one occasion by seagulls. I thought, no, I don't want to live here. So um, at that stage, I looked around for a job, and eventually we always wanted to move out of London. At that stage, I had got married. We wanted to move out of London in terms of a family, so we eventually settled on Worcester. And I went to Worcester, where, again, before my wife joined me, she took about four months to get a job. And, again, I stayed in a and b and then with a friend's mum for a while. So, again, having to put a, a real effort in to actually get my career back on track because I had started to be serious at long last. Right. And, and what, what was the uh, what was happening on the work front at that stage? At that stage, I was doing because I'd done some family law. So it's mainly family law. And they also wanted someone to cover some crime. They had nobody else doing crime in the firm. This was a bigger firm, 60 odd staff. They're now, you know, three or four hundred. Good firm, um, but uh, you know, some good quality work. But uh, yeah, so I, had to tr I was the only criminal lawyer. So I did my first trial there and I hadn't got a clue how to do a trial, you know. Um, uh, so I just went along, saw a trial did it um you weren't given advocacy training in those days so it had to start from scratch dumped in the deep end and um won my first criminal trial fantastic and uh and so what what were your uh, impressions having been in uh three law firms at this stage and uh, uh, actually a fourth uh, if you include the photocopying copying job yes absolutely uh, what what were your thoughts around how um law firms are being run what uh, what what was what was going through your mind? Like, uh, were you looking at, as a person from the inside thinking, well, that this could be a bit better or? I don't think, um, I not really, I don't think that it really dawned on me yet. I think you know, that clear, that interest as a kid, I had it in money, you know, and I used to, I remember work out, you know, all sorts of things when I was a kid with financially, hadn't really, hadn't really reignited. I was just back in law. I was kind of going through the motions, getting some income in, you know, settling down. So at that stage, it was probably another two or three years before the idea of business really kicked in. So I was still just just doing the day job, I guess, at that stage. Mm -hmm. Dealing with the matters at hand, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, certainly there was. I wasn't involved. I was pretty junior still at this stage, um, so didn't really hadn't really given much thought of business. It wasn't said until a couple of years later that, that started kicking in. Right, and and so uh, talk, talk us uh, through those two or three years. What what, what was. Well, I stayed there for a while and then um, I was actually, it's, uh, they actually decided to let me go. I wasn't clearly good enough. Um, so I'll be honest with you, they, they let me go. So, and I, but they wouldn't let me stay in Worcester because there was a restricted covenant. So I had to go somewhere else. Um, so eventually I got offered a job on the South Coast. They've got a big firm. They wanted me to manage a branch. They kind of thought I was quite uh, energetic. So that was fine. So um, I made all the plans to move down. My wife got a job locally and then they decided to close the branch. So no job. So I suddenly had no job. So I had to locum, which is just providing a temporary job. And I came across a firm in Salisbury. Um, within about a week, they offered me a job. Somebody else offered me a job, you know, without applying. So um, we liked Salisbury, so we decided to settle there instead. Um, and at that stage, it started, I suppose, it, it started to happen because I was working for this particular firm who then merged another firm site. So, so I worked for those two firms. Uh, and then one of them wanted to take out a smaller firm, uh, um, wanted to merge or rather take over a smaller firm, which they did, a firm called Banalix. And they wanted me as being Mr. Energetic to go out and, and get some work in. Because by this stage, I was clearly good with clients, bringing work in, efficient. So they wanted me to put a bit of energy up there. And that's how I went in with a guy called Tim, a guy called Tim Banalek. So it's, uh, that's interesting. So uh, it's quite unusual that you, um, you, 
you came into a firm that was merging that then had another merger not long after. So uh, that kind of um, experience, uh, it would have bode you well for what you subsequently went on to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's all a bit incestuous, Salisbury. All these guys were had, had gone into business and fallen out with each other. So, yeah, I, I suppose at this stage I was starting to see how not to run a law firm. Um, and then Tim, but I was supposed to go out to Ben Alex to um, uh, you know, help him. But actually, it, uh, unbeknown to me, though I hadn't met him, he decided, um, he'd obviously heard about me, he decided actually these, these guys were taking solo and doing so badly um, that actually he wanted me as a partner instead, so he offered me a partnership. Um, and that's why I went into partnership with him. Uh, at that stage, I was about 38. Eight, I think he was about 58. Um, we carried on for a few years, but then his dad died when he was 40. He decided to retire. So at that stage, I bought him out. And it really, it, it was from about 38 that I suddenly started seeing opportunities, started bringing in work um, and started getting interested in business. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so just, just to give uh, listeners a, uh, a flavour for where it's got to now, what, what, what's the, the current picture like? And we'll, so, we'll fill it. Some of the gaps in between. So at this age, 3840, just taken, got into partnership with Tim Benalik, rebranded Benalik and Bishop. So I was definitely bringing the work in. I was looking to expand. Um, and at the same time, we actually had, we, we bought a house in Salisbury, but we also had still got a house in London, um, which was going up in price because obviously I bought it for 84,000 and obviously that was going up in price. So that was what happens there. So I had house we were living in, owned, that, owned a house in London um, and um, because we only rented from my father-in-law in, in Worcester. So, uh, yeah, so just starting to get settled and starting to invest in the business and see that grow. Right. And um, and then at some point, the partnership, um, how, how did that conversation go? The... I was going very well with him, never had a crossword, still see him occasionally. It was simply that his dad died and sometimes a bit like COVID, I think COVID has given a huge opportunity for people to re-examine themselves, look at their priorities, what they want to do. And I think it was the same. His dad died, a bit of a shock, lived locally, and he suddenly felt, actually, I, I don't want this anymore. Um, so he basically indicated he wanted to retire. Would I be happy to buy him out? I said yes. I built up, because I'd done a lot of police station work and a lot of extra work, I built up some capital. So I had a bigger capital share than him. So basically, I agreed to buy him out. Um, and we used all the eventual cash we had to do that. He stayed on for a couple of years as, a, as, a, as an employee, effectively, a salaried partner. But at this stage, at age of about 40, I owned the business. Fantastic. And you, you, you started um, getting interested in business. Um, yeah. I, I know that sounds a strange thing, but there's a lot of uh, law firm partners who are, are not even slightly interested in the business of law. Absolutely. I think for many people, for many years, all you need to do is get one little blast plaque, put it on the door, and it was a guarantee of an easy income. Can you believe till about the mid-80s, solicitors weren't allowed to advertise? There are all sorts of ridiculous rules. Um, and I think a lot of people you know, got into, I think most people go into professions to do the work. Um, and as a result, I think lawyers um, aren't very good. I've also got my pet theory, if you, can, if you can bear with me, why lawyers make such bad business uh, managers. I think there are three reasons. Number one, the average age of partners. Now, age is no, uh, is no reason why you can't do a job, but it does mean sometimes you get stuck in your ways. So I know when I looked last about five years ago, the average age of legal law firm partners had gone up to about 59, the average age. So that means the vast majority of them are probably in their 60s. So they're quite stuck in their ways, but it's worse. Worse than that, we're an arrogant bunch. So a bit like when you go and see a primary school teacher, the primary school teacher will sit you down on those tiny chairs. I'm not sure if you've got kids at this stage. I remember distinctly, and they'd have a word with you, you know, uh, Johnny hasn't done this, Johnny hasn't done that. She sits on the table or a high chair, you sit on the small chair, and you feel like being lectured to. I think primary school teachers can do that. Lawyers are the same. 
because you come to us for the answer. And after doing that for 30 or 40 years, I think you, you automatically think you know all the answers. But the worst thing, I think, is legal training. It's not conducive to business for the very simple reason. If you come to me with a legal problem, I'll try to give you my view on what the outcome is by looking at statute or precedent or case law. So in other words, I'm looking to the past to predict the future. Now, if you do that for 30, 40 years, your entire brain set gets used to, to working in that way. So add that to your arrogance and your average age. I think as a result, the average law firm partner has a very weak understanding of business and a very weak understanding of agility or, or really an interest. Uh, and they kind of assume it's 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 a, an easy, easy money. And it's not. It's, get, it's getting tougher. Like any other business, there are increasing pressures. And and um, where did you come to this realization? I'm not sure. I don't think it was a particular day. It was a gradual thing. I think simply my gradual nature started to emerge. Um, I think when I had the position, when I actually I was a I was a partner in a firm, suddenly I could see these opportunities. I could grow. I started working hard. Um, in addition to working during the day, I was on three three duty solicitor schemes. Now, being on one is quite a lot because you get called out a lot. I was on three. I tried to get on a fourth. So I was covering a huge geographic patch out in the middle of the night, constantly being called. Um, but it was producing an income. So I was producing and I wasn't taking it out. I was investing it. So uh, as a result, when I came to buy timber dike out, it was much cheaper because I had all this cash that I built up. We did a deal whereby if I was going to work out of hours, I kept that money and not give it to him, which is only fair because sometimes, you know, I'd be called at three o'clock at night by a drunk and have to go on the phone or four o'clock in the middle of the night and have to drive it to the police station because someone's done for GBH, that kind of stuff. And so he agreed. I keep that. So I left that in the business, which and that's also been something I like. I like investing. I'm, uh, I've always been good at delayed gratification. So that enabled me to kind of start to grow the, um, uh, the business. And, and so the, uh, the firm's expanded uh, uh, over the intervening years. Yes. What, what's the, uh, the current scale? Uh, what, what are the specialisms and, and uh, maybe we should cover well, we a, a where you we are a couple of firm, A couple of other firms. And then we did, a, we, I realised we were going in totally the wrong direction. We were Salisbury's biggest legal aid firm, had a family team of 10 lawyers, but actually about 40% of our work was legal aid. Now, I read a report that the government produced but dishonestly sat on. I only know one other person who's ever seen it, a guy called Professor Stephen Mason, apart from the people involved. And I got it because a mate of mine had been one of the study group uh, and they sat in it for years. But it proved pretty much effectively that legal aid was, in business terms, not profit making. So I made a complete U-turn. I dumped the legal aid, replaced it. So we dumped 40% of our work and then started growing quality work and grew and grew. We've now got about 65 staff, including part-timers and consultants. So probably 50, 55 full-time equivalent. Um, four offices, but quite a few of our lawyers work from home. We've got, now got some lawyers who are p totally remote workers who are very efficient at that. Um, we cover pretty much everything you'd expect. Don't do things like immigration, um, but we cover pretty much across the board. But our biggest area is property. Uh, we have a leasehold team, specialist in doing lease extension and franchisement, right to manage. Uh, team of five, we're looking for a sixth currently, and that's possibly the biggest specialist team this type in the country. Uh, and as I said, the property work is, is, is growing and we're looking to grow it by another 25% in the next six months. And your role uh, increasingly uh, is running the business as opposed to uh, doing the business. Yeah, and, and that, that, that was probably the, the, the biggest overnight change. There came a stage about 10, 12 years ago when exactly I came to that conclusion. Um, actually, I decided the work I was doing by this stage, I'd end up doing childcare work, taking children into care, taking them out of care, that kind of stuff. Um, I decided to stop all my um, personal fee earning entirely, which obviously was a hit to the firm because suddenly my income wasn't coming in to become full-time uh, owner, I guess. Um, uh, so at that stage, my role is, I suppose, it's strategy, uh, recruitment, leadership, 
business development. I guess they're my, my four main main roles now. And, and do you see uh, similar sort of um, situations in your property clients? Uh, the, the sort of small to medium sized uh, portfolio owners that um, are working in, in the business, but not necessarily on, on the business. Yeah, and I think it's very difficult. I think people struggle. Certainly, um, once I started getting involved in property, and I'm quite slow at doing stuff, the property tortoise is, is probably my, 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 my best description. Um, yeah, I, I, it's quite difficult to do both. Um, and the danger is you get dragged back into the day job. And it's certainly an issue I had when I had a very slow, my commercial conversion um, was, I think I, I jokingly described it as my attempt to get into the Guinness Book of Records for the slowest ever commercial conversion. And I kept being dragged back into the day job and there's a risk there, I think. So um, what, I'm doing, what I'm doing currently, I'm actually really forcing myself. As soon as it comes in, I deal with it um, rather than doing the law firm stuff. So, yeah. Do you want to tell us a, a bit about the commercial conversion, like what, what, what uh, it was and... Um, yeah, well, we... again, it, I suppose, entrepreneurs and most property investors or certainly developers are more entrepreneurial. I describe myself as an entrepreneur, only a law firm and a property business. So I had bought um, an office for my Andover office, probably, actually, I've got, I've got the date here, 2006. Uh, 2006, bought it for 300,000. Um, and at that stage, we used part of it for my office, uh, but also it, it was too big, more than I needed. So I rented part of it out originally to the local radio station. And frankly, they paid most of the mortgage. Um, so that worked nicely. Um, when I'd gone around it, knowing nothing about property, I remember thinking actually the layout would suit flats just because the actual shape of it. Front door for one flat, there was a back entrance, central staircase, and at the top of each floor, three floors, there was um, a door that then split up into two halves going to the front and the back um, with, with utilities in the middle. So actually, from a conversion point of view, it, my instinct, which I, though I knew nothing about it, it, it was a natural shape for a, a relatively easy, um, sensible conversion. Um, so yeah, so um, I think when I, then I started being aware of prior approval and permitted development. Um, and decided to go down that route um, and started the conversion course slowly. <laughs> and how, uh, so you, the radio station, um, they they moved out or they... Well, eventually they were taken, lovely guy, we got them really well, never a problem, always fantastic tenants, uh, we always got on well with them, really nice guy owned it. They then sold up to a large national who were a completely different kettle of fish. They had a bad reputation, I've heard from other people they're difficult to deal with, and I didn't like them at all. And it came to a stage and I thought, actually, I quite like to convert this at some stage, and these guys are just getting difficult. So I had a break clause and I said, no, thanks guys, but no thanks. Um, you know, the, the atmosphere had changed, most of the staff had changed, they were difficult to deal with, awkward, and I thought, no, they're not nice tenants. So having done that, it then enabled me to say, right, actually, we don't need all of this space, we can move to smaller rented accommodation and make much better use of this building. So that's when I decided to convert. And you, you had a uh, investment portfolio separate to this at that stage, or um, the, the house in London? Not, not, I don't think I did. No, the house in London we'd sold because at one stage, growth of a law firm is is quite hard work. It's a bit like a super tanker. Um, as long as it's going in the right direction, it's great. But trying to turn, it's very slow to turn. So we had turned, but growth is difficult. Um, I'll give you an example. Some businesses are cash businesses. Converting is perhaps the quickest. Conversion used to be three months, now probably four and a half on average. But we do other stuff. So we do things like medical negligence. Uh, we, we, we do a lot of medical negligence work. I've got a full-time person doing that. And that can take four or five years to get paid. Now, if you're doing that, you know, it, it, all your costs in the meantime, you know, your salary, your everything you have to pay in the meantime. So investing sometimes in law firms, the the, the, the returns come at a later stage. I've got a huge amount of what's like, called... Uh, 
it's like putting aside your your children's university money when there's not milk in the yeah. fridge. Yeah. So the good news is, uh, it, it, depending on the work you do, at the end of the day, when you sell it, there's a lot of money coming back to you. We call it work in progress. So I've got a huge number of cash sitting there I can't get access to, I can't borrow against, but it will come to me eventually at some stage over a period of years. But in the short term, yes, yeah, so I had to sell the London house. Um, we bought it for 84 and a half. We sold it for, I think, about 275. Yeah, I thought that was fantastic. I thought the house market had peaked at that stage. What an idiot I am. Um, I, I looked more, re- I mean, we had no choice. We had to sell it, do it again the business. But I looked at it recently. And admittedly, when we had it, the house was in so-so condition. It, was, it, it needed a lot of work doing. And there was obviously an opportunity to go up into the loft. Last time I looked, it's worth about a million. You know, so uh, um, I think I, I'd like to have held on to that. But uh, it, it's easy to say that in hindsight. Um, but I did thoroughly enjoy that because I managed to get my own back on 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 uh, on a sneaky person. She, uh, this was the, the, the property market is very strong. I could have sold it to a number of people. I had a developer wanting it. This particular lady, however, I'd agreed a term, and I'm very straight. If I agree a deal, I stick with the deal. And she hummed and hard and hard and hummed and couldn't get hold of this. Anyone for months and months and months, just you know, excuse after excuse. And I turned down the other guy who was still you know interested. And eventually, she came back after all this stage. And despite the fact it was a frothy market going up. She said, uh, yeah, I, I can raise the money, but it's a couple of grand less than I offered you. So, so, that's, so can we agree on that? And she was clearly playing me you know, for a fool. So I went straight to the other guy. Uh, and the developer said, do you want to buy it for that price? He said, yes. I then went back to her the same day and said, no, sorry, not coming back to you. I've been offered the same. If you want it, you have to pay more. And, she, and, and so she actually came back that day and said, yes, I can pay more. So having fiddled around for months and then trying to diddle me on two grand, I think I got an extra three or four grand out of her. And I kind of felt that was morally correct. Um, you know that she got she got shafted by her own greed. She tried to save a couple of grand and ended up spending more. So I always found that was a, a satisfactory story. You often don't find morals in these things, but I had in, enormous satisfaction in that couple of grand. All right. So, so uh, the competitive uh, streak is very much alive and uh... <laughs> always always decent. And I felt sorry for, for the developer, but I only accepted offer for a few hours. But I, I felt it was the right thing to do with her. So I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, that was that was that was nice payback. And in terms of um, why, why did you uh, pick a commercial conversion project as your first sort of major uh, foray? I suppose I wasn't looking to get into investment or development at this stage. I wasn't really heavily involved in, in that kind of community at all. Um, it was merely because it was sitting there on my lap. It was a building that clearly uh, was perfect for, for a conversion. Um, that I knew I could get, uh, you know, I wouldn't have to worry about planning permission. Uh, there were no other changes, no external changes, or the windows were in the right place, doors in the right place. So it was purely a PD case. Um, and clearly it was worth considerably more. At that stage, there'd been hardly any shift in the commercial value. So um, I bought it for 300 grand in 2000, and, oh, I've got it here, 2006. And by 2017, we had it valued, and perhaps it was a slight undervalue, but it was about 330. So really, over 11 years, residential had gone up and at and, and, uh, that stage, commercial property had basically flatlined. And I knew it would be worth a hell of a lot more as a residential. And I believed it was a relatively straightforward conversion. Unlike some people, when they buy buildings, you know, you don't know what's hidden away behind the, uh, behind the, the pipes, behind the attic, but whatever. You know, we'd been there for, for 30, 11 years. We knew all about the, business, the building. It was a sound building. There wasn't any problem. And, and so uh, you've got, a, at this point, 65 staff that, so some of them came by way of mergers and uh, acquisitions. Yep. What, uh, what about the hiring? How, uh, what have you learned over the... the oh, gosh. Um, again, I can still... You've probably hired 
165. Yeah, I, I've learnt huge amounts, and I'm actually I'm very I'm very keen on on uh, on on, um, on getting recruitment right, and particularly at the moment, it's unbelievably difficult to recruit. Incredibly difficult. The market out there is changing. The Great Resignation. It's all very real. So as a result, I didn't expect a couple of years ago that I would have to start going for remote staff. But to get good staff, I've had to do it, and so far they've been really good. Um, so the first one I took on, I think, was the head of my uh, residential conveyancing team. He lives in Bedfordshire. I live in Salisbury. It's nowhere near, you know, again, geography, it, it's, it's not commutable. Um, I took him on March the 1st last year. He's brilliant, utterly brilliant. Um, I met him for the first time in October. We actually had our one and only office party in two years in October. I met him once face to face. He's now a salaried partner and he's now heading up the lease extension team. So he's fantastic. So again, so I learned that. Um, I've learned about how to answer questions, the kind of things to look for. Um, weird stuff like I've even researched stuff on on narcissists, because I've, I've learned quite a lot with, with staff over the years that narcissists are really dangerous to a business. So I've got numerous questions I've developed over the years and researched to pick them out. Um, so I, I take it very seriously. You know, I've got some suggestions of questions. Um, what I've also learned recently is is the importance of moving quickly. In, in a current environment, it's so hard to get good staff. So if I get a CV through, it all comes to me directly. I'll look at it. If I'm half interested, I'll say, yes, I'll see them on Zoom as, as a test uh, tomorrow. Um, so I move really quickly, have a quick Zoom. And at that stage, if I think they're still going in the right direction, then we'll have a face-to-face, -face, if possible, interview. Right. So, so moving quickly is, is part of it. And uh, avoiding narcissists. So... Uh, any other tips for, for people looking to hire at the moment? Um, well, the other one, it's just so basic. The other thing which is really important to me is always, always, always check their references. Um, uh, you know, you think most people think, oh, it's just a, a formality. And I can't stand law firms or other businesses who simply say, oh, yes, this person was with us for three years and had one day off. It's meaningless. I was, I've only failed once ever to get an actual verbal, proper, real answer from a law firm. I normally ring them up so they say, won't go any further, entirely confidential. One question, would you rehire them? Um, and sometimes you hear some horror stories. Um, sometimes they exaggerate, but we've, we've avoided a couple of disasters. One we found, I checked on social media, she'd missed another job uh, off her CV entirely and claimed to have gone abroad. So it's fraud, technically, you know, that, that's, it's a fraudulent act and that's a criminal act. So she, she'd lied to get a job. Um, so we didn't touch her. You can't have a convincer who lies. That was one. Another one uh, clearly been lying about the reason he'd left the firm and I rang up the firm in question and the chap said, uh, chap basically made it quite clear he hadn't left he's been sacked you know because his performance was so bad and he'd lied to me so you know you can find these things out um so i think i'm amazed by how many firms don't bother one poor guy took on one of our staff and we'd had and we'd had them and they didn't work out they worked she wasn't good at all uh, she hadn't take he hadn't taken up reference for her he rang me six months later and described all the behavior i said yeah that's exactly what we experienced he'd had for six months if he'd done it on day one he probably wouldn't have taken her on uh, she was eventually struck off um, the other thing I've learned is from Jim Gordon, my favourite uh, business uh, uh, book writer. Good to Great was his first. Fantastic stuff. Um, he did research in the best companies, the great, and they're merely quite Jim good. Collins, no. Jim, Jim Collins, yeah, fantastic. Good to Great is his first and his best, but lots of others. Lots of stuff I learned from him, but this one in particular was the research in the great companies and the good companies. However good they were, they always made mistakes with recruitment, and actually at about the same rate. But there was a fantastic difference between the great and the good. And that's the great would soon realise their mistakes, spot them and act and get rid of that person quickly. 
the good didn't. Hummed and hard, tried to put them through courses, tried to get them to change, and so actually would drag it out. And we learned that. We, we, uh, we, we've, like any other firm, taken on not so good staff from time to time. To start off with, we did exactly that. We tried to work with them, etc. Now I'm afraid we're much clearer. It, we know within a couple of months whether they're either good, or very good, or just not good enough. And so it doesn't happen often, but occasionally if it does, I'm afraid they've got to go and we make that decision quickly, which is actually kinder for everyone because the worst thing is dragging it out for, for a year. It's not good for business, not good for clients, and it's horrible to have the performance managed out when you've got someone looking at you every day. So that's a big lesson we learned. Um, if, you're gonna, if you've got the wrong person, you know you've got the wrong person, make a quick decision. So uh, once you've got them in the door, what, what's the, your theory of culture and team building? Yeah, a good question. And it's particularly um, relevant now, of course, with, with the new world. So, yeah, we, we, we've worked um, quite hard on our onboarding. So our onboarding is now more detailed, um, involving them in the team. They have buddies. And we're trying to work out better ways of keeping people on board when they're at a distance. And again, I'm trying to do some research on that. But actually, there isn't a lot of evidence around because it's all so new. So, yeah, with them at the moment, we try to get them involved. Occasionally, we do internal stuff, raffles or whatever. Um, occasionally, we had an office party recently. Um, but certainly with the um, the new starters, certainly uh, um, if, if they're remote, I give them a call personally uh, by Teams or, or Zoom once a week to start off with just a check and then gradually put it out to two weeks, then three weeks, then four weeks, and then gradually it becomes less often. So I think one of the critical things is is actually keeping in touch with people. Um, I suppose it's the equivalent of management by walking around, which is what I used to do, going around the building, just dropping in on people, having a chat, seeing how they were. Um, not so easy in COVID times. It was never easy with branch offices. But when one of my guys lives in Shrewsbury, I can't drop in on him. You know, it, it, it's a three hours drive. Um, so I'll talk to him every week and every couple of weeks um, to kind of make him feel involved. But yeah, it's something we're looking at. How else do we keep these guys involved? We are looking at doing some other social events, online events. Um, culture we're looking at a lot. Um, we've always been quite clear of our own culture, but we're about to start an entire project where we try to get a view on culture from our staff. So we, we, we worked rather than me just saying this is our culture, which perhaps I've done in the past. We're now trying to get them involved. That's my one of the projects on my desk at the moment. And when that's done, they'll be we'll have to work on ways to promulgate that. So there'll be videos from me on, on the website to actually say before you even come to see us, you have a video from me setting out what our culture is. So I think culture will become increasingly important uh, selling to people. Um, I'm also well aware that there's a huge difference in longevity of staff between people my age. I broadly fit in the 54 to 55 to 64 bracket and the millennials. The average 55 to 64 year old stays in a job for nine years. That's the average millennial three to four. So it, it, it is a, it is a big shift to be moving more regularly. I'm surprised it's as high as three to four. Yeah, well, maybe it'll change, but that's what it is currently. It, certainly, they're not going to touch one of my staff who, who um, we took over from another firm. So if you assume that that was continued employment, which it was effectively, she was with the firm for 55 years. She joined when she was 15 and she retired when she was 70. Um, I doubt you'll ever get that again. I can't see most you know, millennials. You know, my lad, uh, he's 24. He's not going to be in a job for 55 years. You know? yeah, I'm just thinking how many jobs you, you had at age, uh, maybe not 24, but 28. Um, yeah, and, and, and I'm slightly embarrassed by that because one thing I always look on CVs, job hoppers, how many jobs have they had? Because I, I see some with horrendous CVs. My, my least favourite was one who had 14 jobs in 17 years. You know, what did the firm who took them on as the 13th job in 16 years, what did they think was going to happen? Did they think this person was going to stay for 10 years? You know, you're going to reinvent history. You knew what was going to happen, but they do it again. I've had people like that come back to me, reapply years later. And unsurprisingly, every year they've moved on and they keep re reapplying. Mad. Hmm. And and what what's the um, what 
what's going on in the property world as far as uh, the firm? Um, well, broadly, we're growing our property work. Um, the, the, our investor work is increasing. We're starting to work with more and more referrers. So we've just uh, uh, we're arranged, there's a team who do nothing but nothing but training on title splits. So we've just become one of their preferred solicitors. We're the preferred solicitor on at least three Facebook groups. So I suppose we're getting more involved with with referrers. Um, uh, and yeah, it's it's we get more and more experienced, more more clients. Uh, we learn more. Um, you know, every client you, you, you learn something from. Um, you know, there's, there's never a day in law when you don't learn something new. There's always something slightly different. Conveyancing may be a routine, but when you get into more complex investor deals and developer deals and all sorts of issues, and gradually you, you, you get experience. You know, I think the day you, um, you stop learning is the day you die, really. And you're, you're quite big on uh, communication from your team. Yeah. It's, in what way? You mean communicate internally, you mean, or externally? Uh, both, actually. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important for you know in, internally to to have that culture to keep, keep involved to find out what people are. There are some of our guys in particular who have who get through an enormous amount of work. So I check with them regularly, you know, about how they're doing. Um, some of my managers are particularly good at managing, so they kind of take over that role for me. But it's very important, I think, to make sure the question I always ask: Are you waving or drowning? You know, because you know we want people to be busy. You don't make money if you're not busy. But there comes a stage where you can be too busy, and I think too many firms last year took on work they shouldn't have taken on. Uh, and I think that's why I think some solicitors got a bad reputation because they were so slow because they just had too much work. Um, I hate to say it, but there were two occasions last year we stopped taking work on for convincing. It was before that both stamp duty deadlines because the work was just coming in and we knew if we took on more work, everything would grind to a halt. We'd have complaints and we'd lose existing clients. And I'd much rather um, to have existing happy clients and tell to prospective clients, sorry, we can't take you on. We're too busy. Come back when we've got a moment. Uh, you may never get them back, but I'd rather do that and be honest than take on, on work which you can't do properly. Mm -hmm. So good, good philosophy. And, and what, what's the ambitions for the future? Continue growth. Um, not mad growth. I think we, we, we targeted something like 10%. Percentage growth are easy when you're small. So when, when we are very small, you know, I think I, I boasted about 1,500% growth in 10 years. So yeah, that's easy. You know, when you start at turning over 250 grand, it's quite easy to build. When you're that much bigger, it's quite more difficult. So, you know, we're looking, I think we looked at 10% over three years and we've hit that already. Um, so it's now a question of really moving on to the next stage and, and setting some new targets because we've more or less hit them. There have been peaks and troughs, but I think we've more or less hit our target a year or two early. Fantastic. And, and you've also uh, got involved in a number of uh, networking uh, events, both online and offline over yeah. the years. Um, Absolutely. Do, do you want to talk us through uh, some of those? Yeah. Um, I'm not a great fan of social media for many businesses, and I think it helps law firms. The one exception, however, is property. You know, the property community is great, and I really genuinely love the property community because unlike any other business sector I've come across, they're open and they share. Yes, there are a few people who take advantage and there are a few dodgy characters. You get that everywhere. But I'm amazed by how open and kind and decent the pro most of the property community are, giving up time, explaining things, helping people out. There's no other business I've come across. You know, in, in contrast, there's a, a, a local solicitor, nice guy, uh, of, of a bit bigger than us. Uh, my wife, who's also my practice director, went to, on a course with him about three or four years ago. And I always remember her coming back and saying, you know, we had a lovely conversation on the train back. But I swear, if I'd asked him the brand of Roll the firm used, he wouldn't have told me. So insular, so protective. Um, but the property community share, you know, they introduce you to people, they introduce contacts, they give you information, uh, often without expecting anything in return. So I love that. So what do we do? 
all sorts of things. Um, we do Ask the Property Expert. That's uh, a, a live monthly Zoom but panel. That's with you and Bronwyn and... Bronwyn, Simon Mishevitz, your accountant. Simon uh, uh, Hodgson, who's from Funded, who's an IFA. Uh, we've got an excellent um, builder called Ross. Uh, and we've got someone from the LRA, Teresa. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a good panel with a lot of expertise there. And that's fantastic. So we do that monthly. We're on about, I think, 24 next month. I think number 24. Um, uh, I think Someone would be able to uh, look you up on LinkedIn for the details of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There is actually a direct link from my LinkedIn page to it. Yeah, ask the property expert. Yeah, or they can always get in contact with me. Yeah, that goes down well. We we get between 100 and 200 people um, live, and then I think something like 20,000 people will watch the videos. So not as big as you, but we're doing quite nicely. Well, well, yeah, well done. And in terms of your uh, your uh, in-person networking you used to have some famous dinners I, I yes hear. yeah absolutely um I, you know back before the um uh, the covid hit where we used to run uh, at one stage about 10 year property dinners just used to get people who are serious about property together most were investors some were developers um occasional professional services so the odd accountant planner etc um and there was absolutely no formality no talks no sales it was simply getting a drink in the bar sitting down for a three course meal, moving people around chaotically between course. So you had a chat with everybody, uh, making sure you even the tables, we had them narrow. So it wasn't just the person next to you could speak to, you could speak to the person opposite. So as a result, there was a constant interaction. And it's fantastic. You know, um, we didn't ask for anything back, but I'm a great believer in, in karma, I suppose. You know, what goes around comes around. We got clients from it without question. We introduced clients to other clients. And eventually my eldest got his first job through that. So yeah, it's good. And tell us about that. I've heard the story offline, but... Um, uh, yeah, basically, he did a job for degree, and then he went on to do a... By this stage, he started getting really interested in property, because obviously, we sit down with a glass of wine, and we chat about what we do. We're quite a close family. And so he went and did his business. Uh, he did a, a, an MSc at uh, the, Harvard, the Henley Business School on real estate. And now he's, I think he's working for a project manager and, and uh, uh, QS. So he's, he's technically, I think, a, he's started another course now. He's technically, I think, a trainee graduate quantity surveyor. But basically, he doesn't want to do quantity surveying long term, but like me, use it as a, as a tool to get into property um, at a higher level, really. And uh, this way, we're good. They, they do a lot of big stuff, big projects in London, big hospitals. So, um, yeah, he loves it. Well, uh, it's pity he didn't get it finished before you did your commercial conversion. But, uh... yeah, absolutely. I'm afraid to say, yeah, we, we had children far too late. You know, my youngest is, is doing an, an accountancy degree at the moment. So, again, we may use him in due course, but he's not going to be qualified for years. And I'm not sure he'd be an accountant. He's interested in finance, though, likes money. So uh, when he settles down, he may be interested in property as well. So, yeah, perhaps if I had a couple more children, I could have a builder, perhaps, and a planner. It would have been a good team. So, uh, Tim Bishop, uh, absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, if you're uh, wanting to get in touch with, with Tim or his team, uh, you can contact uh, Tim via his LinkedIn profile uh, or indeed at the website. Do, what's the, the spelling of the, the website? It's Bishop Law, so it's B-I-S-H-O-P, Bishop with an S, Law, bishopslaw.com. That's the website. Uh, you will also find me at Facebook or you can email me at tim.bishop at bishopslaw.co.uk. Tim Bishop, a pleasure. I'm Will Mallard. This is My Property World Podcast. Thank you. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. 
We do this by informing, entertaining, and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to, and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, my property world is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property Well profile.